21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. I live in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I actually live 15 miles east of San Francisco. I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I went away to college for a few years uh, in Arizona, and then I came back here in January of 1992. I had uh, one interview in downtown San Francisco at an investment bank called the Robertson Stevens and Company, which was the leading technology focused investment bank. Uh, on, really in the world, uh, it headquartered in San Francisco through the 80s and the 90s. And I had one interview, we talked about college uh, basketball for 20 minutes. And then the guy said, you can start Monday. And I said, well, how can I start Monday? I don't know anything about investing. And he said, well, go buy this book. And he wrote down a random walk down Wall Street, which some of your uh, listeners probably are familiar with. It's a pretty famous book. And uh, so I stopped at the bookstore and picked it up on the way home and read it over the weekend and showed up Monday morning to start my journey and my investment career. For those of you that, that know the book, you know it's it's really one of the most important books in uh, the investment world. And it was first written 50 years ago. And what makes it so remarkable was in that in that first edition, the author, uh, Princeton economist Bert Malkiel, he suggested that somebody should make an index fund. There were no index funds uh, in the world back in uh, 1973, and uh, the index would consistently beat the active funds, but the active fund managers would say, well, you can't buy the index. And Burton was one of a few people that finally said, look, well, why, why not? Let's make a a fund that doesn't buy and sell, and it just buys and, and holds all of the companies and charges a low fee. And he literally wrote, you know, almost perfectly explained what it should be and suggested the New York Stock Exchange actually make the fund as a service to investors. And they did not do it, but his friend John Bogle did and started Vanguard. So I, I started off by reading this book about indexing and efficient markets. And, and the author actually, in addition to being on the board of Vanguard, also was the chairman of the investment uh, group that created the first ETF, the Spider. So so anyway, I, I started by reading, you know, one of the founding, uh, you know, papers in the whole world of indexing and ETFs, which has, of course, taken over most of the investment business now 50 years later, but it was just an idea to Bert Malkiel back then. So I, I read that and then I showed up Monday to start my job and very quickly I realized that I was not an index person and that I'm an Omaha person. And that when it comes to investing, you know, I, I believe that you uh, can do really well, but not just by buying the index and saving the fees, but but by being a smart investor and buying great businesses and, you know, and thinking long-term about them and not worrying so much about the stock market moves uh, from day to day. So, so I'm an Omaha person, um, first and foremost, but what happened to me was in 1999, I had an idea. I was sort of disillusioned by the mutual fund business that I worked around and served as an analyst uh, for and got paid well for, but I realized it was not really a 
you know, there was a lot of people getting rich from mutual funds, but they were mostly the fund managers and uh, uh, that the fees charged, they, you know, they ate, uh, it was like a giant tax on every investor and uh, that, that, you know, that you really needed to, um, you know, give people a way to invest directly into the stock market. Because one of the problem back then, you know, in 1993, four, five, if you wanted to buy a stock, first of all, the lowest commission was $29. Secondly, you had to buy 100 shares. And the, the average stock was $30 a share. So, you know, if you're trying to, you're a young person trying to save money every month, which is what you're supposed to do. And you say, okay, I can save $500. Well, you had to put it into a mutual fund and pay somebody a, you know, a percent or 2% of your money. And because $3,000 to buy one stock and let alone buy 10 stocks. And I decided that was not, you know, that could be better. And that it really in a perfect world, people could buy $10 worth of Coca-Cola or $5 of Cisco if you had fractional share brokerage. And this, you know, this internet thing that had shown up a few years before seemed like it might be a way to aggregate you know smaller orders and actually pull this off and so i found some people that helped me figure it out and we filed a patent on fractional share trading that would allow people to buy in dollar amounts instead of share amounts and and i i called the guy at, at princeton bert malkiel and said hey dr malkiel i don't know you but i read your book and i've got this idea and uh, he said that sounds like a great idea and it sounds like it, it will also be good for investors and he was happy to be an advisor. So I, I've been working with that uh, individual, Bert Malkiel, for 25 years. Now. He's an amazing human, still at it. And um, uh, so we started this this thing and people said we were crazy and that, you know, why, why do you need this and and so forth. And, and now it's, you know, that's gone mainstream. But we sold our company. Our company was called e-investing. I, I hated that everyone said, oh, e-trading. I'm like, you don't want to trade. You want to invest. Don't Trading doesn't work for anybody, even the you know most professionals. Trading is not the right strategy. Buying and holding great businesses is, and and so let's not have e trading. Let's have e investing. So that was the name of the company, and the, and actually the product we called it Build Your Own Fund uh, was the name of the the product. E Trade changed it to Stock Baskets or something, um, and now almost every brokerage firm in the world offers fractional share trading, including Schwab and and everyone else. So that's how I got hooked up with Burton. And then right after that, we had an idea that maybe we could do another thing, which would let people build their own custom index funds, especially if they had fractional share brokerage, then you could say, well, I'm gonna you know, make my own index or I'll, I'll buy a, an S&P clone. I'll, I'll buy a 50 stock portfolio that could track the index. And we thought, well, why not become a, a manager of customized you know, S&P 500 portfolios? So if you, you know, we wouldn't buy 500 stocks for you, but we'd buy 50 stocks or 100 stocks. And we could track the index pretty close, the same risk level as all 500. And then if you wanted to customize, you could leave out tobacco stocks or or alcohol or whatever you were against. Um, and then if you were a taxable investor, you could actually beat the index by tax loss harvesting. So 
that was the idea. Again, people said, you're crazy. Why would anyone do this? You know, that's one thing you you definitely learned as an entrepreneur. I mean, you, you know, that's you're going to have doubters, right? Everyone's going to be a doubter almost. If it's a new idea, you know, people, it's just hard for a lot of people to think like, you know, why, why would we do that? It makes it, and this is a real problem, especially I find in the investing and index world of the investment world. But so anyhow, we started this thing, Active Index Advisors, so people could build their own custom uh, S&P 500 strategies in a separately managed account. And um, uh, we ended up selling the company. They, by the way, they call this direct indexing now. The, 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 the name that most, if you Google this idea, now they call it direct indexing. We called it active indexing. Somebody else sort of rebranded it. But, but anyhow, this has also gone mainstream and you can get it at Charles Schwab and Fidelity. Uh, personal indexing is another name I think Vanguard uses for it. So right about the time we sold the company, though, we sold the company at the very end of 2004. But in in uh, a few months before that, Google went public. And when Google went public, they asked my partner, Bert Malkiel, to give a talk to their employees before the IPO. They're, you're going to have some money and here's let's bring in the best, you know, guy to tell you what's the right thing to do with your money and, and be smart. And so they invited Burton and and Bill Sharp, the Stanford uh, economist and Nobel Prize winner, was the other speaker. I wasn't invited, but I knew Burton was, you know, going to be on the West Coast, and we had dinner the night before. And then a few months later, my phone rang, and it was a person from Google, and they said, "Hey, I heard about this active indexing, and I've got some money now, and I, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to make my own, you know, custom S&P 500 strategy." And I said, "Great. Who's your advisor?" And he said, I don't have an advisor. And I said to him, I said, well, we don't work with individual investors. We work with financial advisors, you know, and, and wealth managers at Credit Suisse or, or Morgan Stanley or, or you know, Deutsche Bank or what, what have you, wherever we were approved at the time. And he said, well, I don't want an advisor. And I said, well, I can introduce you to one. And he said, no, I don't, I don't want an advisor. I, you know, I listened to this guy, Bert. He said to keep this cost down as much as possible. And I think that person's probably going to add a cost. And I was very reluctant, but I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll come down and meet with you. I drove down to Google one day and sat down with this kid. I mean, he was pretty young. I was only 30, I think, but he was like 25 or something. And kind of explained what we did. And and I, uh, uh, he had been one of the people that, you know, when you misspell a word and it says, did you mean? He was, I think, pretty involved with that. And um, kind of showed him what we did. And he said, okay, well, how much should I invest in that strategy? And I said, well, how much money do you have? And he said he had a lot. And I said, okay, well, um, you're, you know, I said, I don't have a pie chart. I don't know what the allocation should be for you, but, you know, if you've got X, 
you know, maybe if you get X dollars, you maybe you should put if you're a conservative, maybe you should put 25% in the S&P and you're rich, so you should be conservative, but you're 25 years old, so you should be aggressive. So maybe you're moderate, you know, a balanced, you know, average portfolio allocation. And maybe that's 25 or 30% to the S&P, but, you know, we'll figure that out. And he said, well, what about the rest of my money? And I said, well, we don't do that. We just do these custom index strategies. And he said, well, what would you do? I said, well, just use cheap ETFs for all the other asset classes. And he said, well, can you do that for me? And I said, fine. And so all of a sudden, I end up becoming sort of my side job as I'm advising this uh, Google person on how to handle their money and doing it for them. I asked him two questions. I'm sure I asked him other questions. But when I met him, I, I asked him two questions. First, I asked him if he wanted to leave out alcohol or tobacco or any you know, so-called sin stocks. And he said, I, I never want to own Microsoft. So, so that was his version of ESG. And then I asked him what he wanted to do with his life. And he was the first person that I ever heard say artificial intelligence. And so now I, I, I am not in touch with him currently, but I see him, you know, in the news sometimes for his current efforts. So he's achieved his goal in life now. And um, so anyway, that's, so that happened in, in 2004. And then all of a sudden he starts introducing me to other people at Google. In the spring of 2005, I start driving from San Francisco to Mountain View every day to have lunch with some other developer um, from, you know, who knows where, somewhere, some, a lot of them were from the U.S., but there was a lot of Eastern Europeans uh, as well. And I remember one person trying to convince me that the his entire core should be warehouse. His core portfolio should be warehouse space in Romania. I think was his idea of, of how to how he should invest. Which maybe it was a great idea. I didn't. I told him I couldn't advise him on that. But but um, so so that was really fun. And but while I start going to back and forth to Mountain View, Burton starts going to China. So Burton again, he's been teaching economics for God, well, fifty years, I guess, probably at Princeton, and and he's got a, a few economists that were at Princeton that were Chinese. And in about the year 2000, they had been, uh, you know, they'd gone back to teach economics in Beijing. And they started to call Burton and say, you got to come see this, right? China's economy was growing at over 10%. And they said, Burton, we're capitalist and you wouldn't believe it. You have to see what's happening. And so he starts going to China 20 years ago or whatever that, whatever that was. And I'm again, I, he's going to China. I'm going back and forth to Google. And him and his two friends wrote a white paper about investing in China. And it later became a book called From Wall Street to the Great Wall. But it started as a white paper. And the Google people heard about it and called me and said, hey, can Burton come talk about China? And I said, sure. You know, Burton, he's on the board of a company in San Francisco. So every quarter he'd be you know, down by the airport for his board meeting. And I said, I'll, I'll swoop up Burton at the airport hotel and we'll drive down to Mountain View. And and so almost, I guess it was 19 years ago or 18, whatever, a long time ago, I picked up Burton. We drove to Mountain View and he gave a talk. And when he was done talking, everyone looked at me and said, we want to invest in China. And now I, I didn't know what that even meant really at that time. I had never been to China at that point. And 
you know, I had read Burton's paper and I knew a little bit about China from, you know, whatever exposure I'd had. But how in the world you would invest in China blew my mind that, you know, that that was even a thing. But literally from the time that talk ended until today, that has become my entire life, not just China, but then emerging markets more broadly, which, you know, includes India, Brazil, you know, it's basically mostly Asia, Latin America, and then some Africa and Eastern Europe, European countries. So that's what I that's what I've been doing basically for the last 20 years is emerging markets uh, investing and with a focus on the internet companies. So basically, you know, when you really take apart what emerging markets are, you've got um, uh, and the reason that investors should care about emerging markets is, first of all, they're big. I mean, this is where 85 percent of the world's people live and they're younger than we are. They have much better demographics. So it's about 90 percent of the people, you know, of the future, people under the age of 30. So emerging markets really are the world. And. And when you just take the whole thing apart, that the thing that's emerging are that those people, and they want stuff. They want more and better food. They want more and better clothing. Uh, they want appliances. They want um, to go to movies and take a vacation. They want a motorized vehicle, and they want their kids to go to Harvard. And that's that's the story. But I mean, if you're investing in emerging markets, it's all about the consumer. The indexes have all sorts of banks and oil and government-owned corrupt companies. And so they, the emerging market indexes are bad. And what you really want to just do is invest in the consumer. And that's what I've been focused on for basically 20 years. But I realized something about 10 years ago was that the that mega trend of the emerging market consumer was now um, coming together with two other mega trends at an incredible rate. The, the second mega trend that is happening in emerging markets is also something that we've been experiencing for a long time. It's called the computer. I, I got a, you know, when I showed up in, in Tucson, Arizona to go to college in 1988, my roommate had an Apple computer on the desk that I think, I think all we did was write white papers on it or papers of, I don't think there was any other functionality that we used, but so I've had a computer for a long time. Well, you know, they've gotten better and obviously in every way. But the reality is most of the world is getting their first computer today. And so those six and a half billion you know, new consumers are not only becoming consumers, but they're getting their first computer. And it's not a desktop computer and it's not a laptop computer. And it doesn't have an Apple logo in 90% of the cases. It's a Android based smartphone that's getting better and more affordable every year. And you know, if I had talked to you six months ago, I would have told you that you could get a brand new smartphone for as little as $50 in India. And that, that's true today. But you can also get a brand new smartphone in India now for $12. The Geo Bharat, uh, you know, it's not an iPhone 15, but it makes payments and has a screen to watch video. And that's what the Indian consumer wants. So you've got billions of people getting their first ever computer today. I mean, we're talking like 7 million people a month in India are getting their first computer today. And when they get that first computer, they're getting the third mega trend, which is something that, that you know, I've been part of for a long time. In fact, it, since 1995, uh, when I was living in the San Francisco Marina District, uh, and it's called the internet, which I, again, in 1995, I on a telephone line, I 
plugged my you know modem or whatever I had and, and into the into the into the telephone line and it you know whirled and whatever and then I was on the internet. Well, guess what? Most of the world's never been wired at all. So as those people get that first ever computer, they're getting their first ever internet access via uh, affordable mobile uh, uh, data. When you combine those three things and recognize that these people don't have the consumption infrastructure we have, first and foremost, nobody has a credit card or a bank account or a debit card. I mean, that's that's not a thing in most of the emerging markets. Now, there's probably not a you know a big box you know Target store or Carrefour or Walmart anywhere nearby, and even if there is, they probably don't have a car to drive to it. So. Um, so these people are leapfrogging all of these things and in many ways are more digital than us. And it, it really does start with the money. And so the growth with what, what those three things have created is I think the fastest growing sector on the planet in the last 15 years in terms of publicly traded companies and their revenue, which has averaged over 35% for the for the whole sector. So it's created this perhaps unprecedented growth story. Now, for the first, you know, um, call it 15 years of that or, you know, uh, 10 years of that, it was all about China, right? I mean, if you think about the, you know, when did human beings on the planet first get the internet, right? Did, did, they, did they, when did they first have personal computers, a computer at their home or apartment, could plug it into the wall and get on the internet, a browser they could open and buy something. I probably bought something that way in 1997, but I was, you know, a tech guy in San Francisco. So, Let's say it started in the year 2000. And from 2000 to 2015, what did we see? We saw the FANG stocks take over our lives and our stock market. First on PCs, then on smartphones. So that was sort of the first way. The second wave was China, right behind us. Two thousand five to twenty twenty, and the Alibaba, Tencent monsters uh, that they became leading the the charge. Baidu was actually public before Google was right. The the Google of China was public before Google. So, so that was the second wave. Now, there's still growth in China, but China's e-commerce market is the biggest in the world by far. In fact, it's China's e-commerce is four times bigger than every other emerging market combined. So, it, you know, China might be the emerging market in a traditional sense, but when it comes to the internet and smartphones and e-commerce, China is the Jetsons. But what's coming now? It's happening now and it's going to be really big and it's really just starting is the third wave because China's 1.4 billion people. The other 45 emerging and frontier markets have four times that. And while China's e-commerce penetration is 25%, the other, uh, you know, five and a half billion people, they're at 5%. So China, the other countries, so... This third wave is going to be giant, and it's already happening. You see it in Latin America with companies like Mercado Libre or Nubank, um, and now it's India. Mm -hmm.
And India is getting involved in the story now. And India, it's the most, uh, well, it's the perfect emerging market. I mean, the reason that what's so amazing right now about the India situation is, you know, when I got involved with China, you know, 19 years ago, 18 years ago, whatever it was exactly, China and India were really close in terms of their size of their GDPs. And so, and the, of course, the populations are about the same. So the GDP per capita numbers are also the same. But what you saw China do was start to build the world's greatest infrastructure. And and they were able to do that because they don't have a lot of bureaucracy. They got you know, one one party to to decide what to do and get it done pretty decisively. And, and the results are, you know, can't really be questioned. They've got the world's greatest infrastructure now and they can build better products than anyone for better prices and get them onto a boat and get them to a store near you and so um so china was was pulling away and india couldn't even get the power to work i mean the the british bureaucracy that was left there the socialist elements that they still have yet to completely shake i mean you know not as easy to get things done there and so china kept going and india was basically doing nothing and so but what has changed now is um well, a lot of things have come together. But if you sort of step back and say, okay, well, the you know, I, as I tell people, I, India is the perfect emerging market. You know, I, I used to pose it as a question, like, is it? And I'm like, well, it is. And there's really not any way to deny it. Because if you think about why are investors interested in this space in the first place, lots of people, they're young, their economies are growing faster, and that's driving consumption. Okay, well, let's look at that. Lots of people. If we leave out China, India has more people than all of the other emerging markets combined. So India is now bigger than China by a little bit. They just passed China about a year ago. But because it's so much younger, because they have more than half the population is under the age of 25, China's aged now. China has a demographic, which has also been compounded by the one-child policy, where they, they don't have the demographics they did a long time ago. And meanwhile... India is the biggest country the world has ever seen today. And tomorrow it'll be the biggest world the co- country the world's ever seen. And that's going to go on for a long, long time. They're growing. And so check the box. Not just the biggest. If you want to leave out China, it's half of the entire population, more than half. So nothing else has that scale. Now, um, it's as I mentioned, it's younger. It has the fastest growing economy. Now, the the estimates for India have been in the six to six and a half percent range for this year and next year. But the last two quarters, they've beaten that by a full point. So they've been growing at over seven percent. And I am one of at least a few people that think maybe a higher growth rate than six or six and a half percent is attainable for India. And I'll tell you partially why that is in a moment. And um uh, so you have the fastest growing economy and and um, and it's driving consumption. And so just like we saw in China, India has an exploding middle class of people that want stuff, right? And so that, again, that nobody else has any of the other emerging markets have those elements, but not nearly to the size uh, uh, of this. I mean, they're number one in every category. So yes, they're the perfect emerging market that way.
But what starts to separate the the country and the opportunity is the following. So right now, the country is led by Prime Minister Modi, and he's just completed his 10th year, two five-year terms. Uh, he They don't have term limits. He will almost certainly be elected again uh, here in the next few months for a third term. And he has finally started to run the country like a business. And in the last decade, they've cleaned up a lot of red tape. It was so hard to do business in India and the permits and the tax code. I mean, it was just a, it really hard to do things. And they've simplified things and gotten rid of a lot of red tape, simplified the tax code. And most importantly, they've got the infrastructure investment going. And in the last 10 years under Modi, they've doubled the entire infrastructure, basically, of what they built in the first 65 years. And they have a trillion and a half dollar comprehensive plan, uh, fi fixing the roads. Du they've doubled the number of highways. Um, they have a wonderful, extensive train network. The British left them. They've been electrifying it. They're fixing the stations, adding stations, their own homemade high-speed trains that they're finally rolling out onto the tracks. They're going to triple the number of airports. One of the first luxuries of a emerging market consumer is to get up, you know, get on an airplane for the first time and go to, you know, go to Disneyland. Or right? probably not to Disneyland, but whatever the local equivalent is. Um, uh, so the airports are, are the, the travel uh, domestic travel markets exploding, and uh, and the seaports. And the, now the problem with all this talk about diversifying supply lines and China plus one is that you know the reason everyone everything's made in china is because they make it better and cheaper than everybody else and a lot of that's because they have the best infrastructure now india's you know can catch up um but it'll, well they won't catch up in my lifetime but they can you know they can cut the 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 advantage that china has down um which they will but the ports take a long time to build and you know port capacity in china is you know seven times what india has and so so, but they're but the good news is they're working on it. So you finally have that part of the foundation, and then you have these two other things, which really are the the differentiator. And the first one is just the human capital. You know, India's had a tech sector that's older than I am. I mean, Tata was originally formed as Tata Computer Systems in 1968, and so you have this ecosystem of technology companies. Infosys, of course, the original startup of India. Um, which went public, you know, 30 years ago, right? So you've got these billionaire founders, an ecosystem of technologists. You have an incredible um, uh, reverence for education. You have lots of our best colleges are filled with uh, Indian students. I believe almost half of the deans of our best business schools are Indian. Uh, India's got 24, uh, 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 23. Uh, it's got over 20 of its own institutes of technology that modeled after MIT, the IITs that produce a lot of incredible talent. Um, there's 25 S&P 500 companies that have Indian CEOs. Two of those include the, the CEOs of both Google and Microsoft, who both came to the United States on temporary work visas originally. So no other country has anything like this. The Indian talent pool is un matched.
And then the the final piece of this, which is really a secret sauce, and I don't think people understand this because I, I didn't actually understand this until maybe 10 months ago, but India has built a incredible technology platform to run the entire country on. And they it's referred to frequently as the India stack, S-T-A-C-K, the India stack. And now that, that might sound abstract to people. And I, and I think part of the reason I didn't maybe understand this better is it sounded sort of boring and abstract to me as well. But the, the way to think about this, this stack, it's a series of programs that form a digital public infrastructure for India. And they're technology-based platforms that work together and have created this, as I said, a, this digital foundation for the entire country. And nobody else on the planet has anything like this. And so let me try to explain it um, whereby people can understand it. So digital public infrastructure, if I you know, ask for a, a raise of hands, how... How many of you can tell me a piece of digital public infrastructure? Probably most people would sit on their hands and said not have an idea. Here's what are two examples of digital public infrastructure. These are things that everybody uses, but they're sort of behind the scenes, the digital scenes, and uh, that we use them every day. The biggest and well, most well-known one is called the internet. The internet is our greatest piece of digital public infrastructure. GPS is another piece, right? I didn't launch a satellite, but you know, I, I bought a smartphone, and now, you know, the the car, you know, can come find me on the corner to, you know, bring me back from dinner or what have you. So, those are two examples of digital public infrastructure. So, India's built their own, and it's genius. The hero of the story is actually the chairman of Infosys, one of the founders, Nandan Nilkani, who is well known. He had written books about India and its future. And and uh, what happened was in 2009, the government decided that they needed to start a national identity card program and give everybody in the country a physical card from the government with their picture and a unique 12 digit number. Because one of the real problems India had in developing was that nobody had identification. Less than half of the babies even got birth certificates. So it was kind of chaotic. And so they, they had talked about it for several years and they said, okay, we're, we're gonna do this. We're gonna give everybody a 12 digit number in their own card. And they asked Nandan Nilkani if he would be in charge of the program. And because he had done another city volunteer job in Bangalore and was again, well known. And they he asked him if he would lead this program and he agreed to do it, but he had one uh, thing that he insisted on was what they had, which was that they had to use a lot of technology to help solve India's challenges. And that if he was going to be in charge, not only would everybody get a 12 digit number on a card, but that 12 digit number would be linked to that human being with a fingerprint scan and an eyeball scan, biometric information. And so they launched this in 2010 totally totally voluntary nobody was required you know it wasn't like a big brother thing and so they launched the program i heard about it i added the logo to one of my slides you know look at the indian government they're trying to try to you know help the country grow and um 
but I didn't really pay attention to it. And and then about so that's the that's the foundation layer. It's called Audar, which which literally means foundation. So Audar is the database, the the biometric a database. They added a layer on top of this and know your customer identity layer. And then in 2014, they launched a program with the banks and said, if you're in the Audar database, you can walk into a bank with nothing except your fingers and your eye and open a bank account basically instantly. Digital bank account. So I don't remember that part of the story. I mean, I, I may have seen something about it, but it was, you know, biometric, whatever. This sounded kind of boring and abstract well let me tell you what's happened now since they launched there's now essentially 95 percent of the entire population 1.4 billion people are in the database with and can be identified with their eyeballs and a finger scan and, and can identify themselves as such they've used that to open 800 million digital bank accounts so you've taken an unbanked, informal economy and not only brought everybody in digitally, but you did it with, without, you know, with, with very little friction and, or in cost. So that's the first thing that they use this, this stack for. And then because it's all open source, what happened was in, in 2016 was really the or open APIs. The um the big bang for India was 2016. And what happened was um Reliance Industries launched the Geo uh, mobile network, the first 4G network in India. And in 2016, basically nobody had even 3G. Everybody was on 2G and it was a price war, and the you know, the carriers, which were very um uh uh there was a lot of competitors and they didn't have a lot of market share. They were at a price war on 2G. Geo comes in and spends $25 billion to build the brand new 4G network ready for 5G and 6G and launches and offers the best rates and, you know, free calls forever and free data for a short period and, and the lowest cost data in the world. And they, back then it took about three hours to get a new mobile phone. If you went into the, you know, Airtel store or whatever, Reliance Geo used the Audar and the KYC layer, and they cut the three-hour process down to 10 minutes. People could get a phone with just, instead of them having to figure out who you were, they could prove who you were instantly. And they basically added 500 million new 4G subscribers. And again, the data cost. So you've, digit, you've given them digital bank accounts at a... Uh, a $12 pocket size supercomputer and um uh uh and and now 5G coverage now 5G um they've got the whole country in 5G now I think and the other thing that happened in 2016 was um, they introduced a payments layer, the Unified Payments Interface, UPI. And 
Now I heard about this and it was QR code based payments. And I thought, okay, well that's, it's kind of boring. And we got Mercado Pago and in, you know, Latin America's revolutionized Latin America long before that it, with their payments. And, and, you know, and we used to say this was not joking. If you went to China back then, the beggars had QR codes. And that, that, that was not a joke. That wasn't probably is true. I haven't been back in a few years, but so QR code based payments didn't overwhelm me, but it was the nuances that I didn't pay attention to, which was that the payment was instantaneous and with zero friction or cost, meaning that I could send you a thousand dollars and you could send it back to me and we could do that a million times and it would still be a thousand dollars. I didn't really, those details I didn't really pay attention to. Again, I added the logo to my, you know, let's go India slide. And what um, what's happened now since the launch of UPI is the entire Indian economy has gone from 95% paper-based cash to 80% digital transactions. And the UPI numbers, the chart for this is amazing. This is exploding. The slope of the curve is not declining. The number of monthly instant payments right now is about 12 billion, which is about half of the entire world's payments of that type. So, and people are paying their taxes now, and that's paying for the infrastructure. And so this, this digital stack, those first layers in particular, nobody else on the planet has that. Not, not even, no developed country has that, nor do I think they will anytime in the foreseeable future. I mean, obviously the United States, we're not going to you know, we're all at a national uh, biometric database. I guess if it's a volunteer, maybe, but, you know, I don't know what our sign-up rate would be. But in India, everybody is in the database. And so this is an incredible platform. And, and the man that that has built this, I mean, he's got to be one of the most important humans on the planet, in my opinion, in terms of advancing the world. And he's not done. He's got another layer that they just added that will bring the all of 95% of retail spending right now in India is in 13 million mom and pop stores, little Karana stores like a bodega for, you know, people in New York, for example. But, you know, some mom and pop store that's got most of the things you need for your day to day life. And they still dominate. There's 13 million of them. It's 95% of retail spending. And so what's happening is rather than have those you know, Corona stores get replaced by, you know, a Target store. What's happening is they're digitizing the Coronas. And they have a new layer to the stack, which is the ONDC, Open Network for Digital Commerce, which is meant to de-aggregate the different elements of of, of uh, e-commerce and, and level the playing field. It's, you know, it's just launching. And then they're going to start, I think, to be able to create a consumer credit market because consumer credit is very, very low in India. And you can really boost an economy's growth by growing your consumer credit. And now that everyone has a digital footprint of all their financial activity, getting you know a, a credit score is is coming. So so anyway, the India story is it, it's incredibly compelling. It's a lot like China 15 years ago, except it's a democracy. Its demographics are better, and 
nobody on the planet had a smartphone 15 years ago. And now there's $12 supercomputers in not everyone's pocket yet, but won't be long. So to capture, you know, the growth that I've described in whether it's all emerging markets or ex-China. Uh, which is a, you know, we basically have three offerings. It's all emerging markets internet, which is EMQQ. Uh, Ex-China uh, is a, the ticker FMQQ. And then the India only part of the story has a ticker INQQ. And you can learn about all of these uh, strategies um, at www.emqqglobal.com. And uh, please also uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn and connect there, Kevin T. Carter, EMQQ Global. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the 21st Century Entrepreneurship Podcast, a gold awarded journey hosted by Martin Piskorik, connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective and embark on the path to success.